Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that that's why, I mean, really exhaust as a podcast couldn't have happened without COVID. Mm. It was like, I was working an NGO job and for whatever reason, it became like a COVID-19 think tank when the crisis broke out. Cause you know, everyone was freaking out. Yeah. And so I basically, I was the guy that got assigned to figure out how supply chains worked. Hmm. And then I got laid off, <laughs> hmm. um, but I just kept doing the research. And then the huh. more research I did, the more I was like, I think that's really when I grew into a type of more mature materialism, I mm. would say. Um, I think a lot of times materialism on the American left passive for having a really good grasp of like how or what can be seen as really good grasp of how party politics work. And that's not nothing. That's important. But there are some basic like engineering discipline things that me as like a two liberal arts degree haver uh, did not receive, you know, and that I had to sort of like train myself up in. And so exhaust was really a product of continuing to do research on what had happened to American manufacturing, how these supply chains worked, like what manufacturing breakdowns looked like, the history of the firm over the course of United States history and how that's changed and interacted with US foreign policy. And, um, you know, John and I have known each other for 10 years and we just kept having like conversations about this shit. And then we were mm. like, all right, you want to know what? Let's just do a thing. Yeah. Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah, Everyone's a yeah. podcaster now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we were actually just recording right before this. And I said, it used to be like you were a business and now everybody's an NGO. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know. That's we're, how all, it feels. we're all like mini content creators. I mean, that's like, that's our entire economy now is just content. Uh, we're all like yeah. these little micro content creators um yeah and it's it's weird too because like everyone's doing the work for free now in a way mm -hmm. where like the th things that used to have to be an ngo doing it now people are like socially reproducing them without getting paid by an ngo but they're just like operating yeah. like mini ngos like you said you know like sometimes i i say like the left is just a just a um assortment of like action network email lists where like <laughs> even people that are like doing an independent thing that's not funded it ends up like just reproducing the same dynamics um totally. that, that we see in ngos and like how they operate oh yeah So your journey to like, you know, hating solar panels and hating, uh, hating wind so much, you know, personally, uh, it didn't come from like a prescriptive policy thing. It was like you, I'm just joking about you hating things like, uh, you know. Oh, I totally hate uh, solar, solar panels. I'm not going to interrupt you. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. <laughs> not even a joke. Uh, yeah. But uh, your journey to getting there, I mean, it's like an agreeable thing, obviously, like, for a long time, unquestionably for me, I was like, oh yeah, cool. Like solar panels, mm -hmm. that's, we need more of those and less burning fossil fuels. Um, so how did you, how did you get there? You know, was it from this like uh, rigor, you know, rigorous approach that you had to analyzing the world or was it something uh, kind of like a point someone made to you? Like, what was your- it, ha it happened, it happened piecemeal. I mean, part of it was basically just meeting some of the people who were working for Michael Schellenberger at some point before I ever even worked for him. Mm -hmm. um, and them showing me what the research was they were working on. But you know, I'm a doubting Thomas, right? <laughs> so I see the graphs, but like, I barely know what a fucking number is. So I'm yeah. like, well, maybe. Um, and uh, 
you know, then I read Lee Phillips's Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. And mm. that was a huge conversion experience for me. And then it's funny, right? So like right after that, I write this piece for Invisible Oranges, a heavy metal publication, not too long after that, uh, which was sort of me recycling every single left point I could into a single piece about the Vans Warp Tour. And it was like, I remember finishing it and being like, I don't know if I believe anything I just wrote. Anyway, send it to the <laughs> editor. You know, it has some of the same like environmental pessimism in it and like all of these, these other things. And it was sort of the thing that I had to write to get that out of my system and then start thinking for myself. Like, can you explain, what do you mean by environmental pessimism? Like eco-pessimism being like, it's bad to consume. Mm. Like, you know, all these things are adding up. Like we're all going to die, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. stuff like that. I mean, part of that's felt a little bit more phenomenologically real to me because at the time I was writing that, like when I was driving to Colorado to go to the Warp Tour, like New Mexico was basically burning down. Like as we were driving, crossing the state line, we watched a wildfire like move over the lip of a mountain, you know, wow. and it's hard not to have like kind of apocalyptic feelings when you see that for the first time. Well, the, those yeah. happen every year anyways, right? I mean, I'm sure they're accelerated because of climate change, but um, I mean, don't yeah. wildfires happen anyways in like desert areas? Yeah, totally. And that's why when I like finished it, I remember finishing yeah. the piece and I published it. And I was kind of like, I had all these weird feelings. It took me a long time to sort through it. So I would say before I start, I was like open to a different material perspective through Lee's work. And then there was frankly some like inner work that I had to do to mm. like reconcile with myself, like what this was going to mean. Like, what did it mean to be on the left? Like, what is that perspective? Like, uh, how much am I just walking around with like conventional wisdom I've just inherited? Yeah. And once I could sort of start to decouple those things, I could start to ask uh, different questions, right? Like, you know, there's, there's a phrase that I've recently just learned because I am still learning a lot of this stuff, but I learned it from Meredith Engwin, who I just interviewed on my podcast about her book, Shorting the Grid. Great episode. Yeah, thank you. She um, was so she, cool. She's amazing. I love Meredith. Yeah. She's wonderful. Um, and uh, phenomenal book. People should go buy it. I think it's an essential like read. But it's phrase engineering discipline, right? So like, how does this actually work? Now for somebody like me, you know, who like studied poetry and then got like a master's degree in the quote unquote great books from like a Straussian institution, you know, like I didn't have a lot of that. Um, and so I just had to ask myself really basic questions, hmm. you know, like I had to start asking questions that felt like I was a kid getting one of those like DK how it works books, yeah. you know, uh, where I was just like, how does this thing even get made? Yeah. You yeah. know, like, how does this even happen? And then once I could start there, you know, you start to be like, oh, okay. Like concrete is just a thing that we're going to have for a long time. And it's very <laughs> carbon intensive and that's mm. just the way it is. Mm. Yeah. You know? And so like that started to shift my perspective on things like green policy. Right. Because right. we're like the developing world has to like have all these solar things. So I'm like, well, yeah, those aren't energy intensive enough for things like the concrete they need to have like infrastructure to where they can survive climate crises. Right. You know, so yeah, something that reminds me too of that is this, the idea that like, just because you see people organizing around an issue doesn't mean that it's like the right thing. Yeah. You know, with environmental stuff all the time, like there's so many different motivations and agendas by different environmental groups that like for a long time, it was just kind of assumed by me like, oh, solidarity with the people that are protesting, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But then realizing like, 
looking, you know, looking through it through a more rigorous analysis, it's like, wait a second, what, what is like the class composition of these people or who's funding the group or what industry is going to benefit from this really, um, you know, that, that's the kind of like, that's the, that's the stuff that honestly makes, I think, I think I agree with you on, on what I know of um, your analysis of nuclear. That's what makes it really difficult is that it's, it's getting harder and harder to, um, to connect with people about this stuff because they're bombarded with so much uh, stuff. And it's so hard to like weave through and like figure out what, what is the truth and what would benefit most people. And, there, yeah. and there's so much pressure to just kind of blindly believe in what science, whatever that is, you know, science is just something that's, you know, descended down upon us from like the, the people who know better than us. But like, I, I really like that approach of just saying, almost using like a childlike curiosity about the world and saying, wait a minute, does this make sense? You know, like to mm -hmm. me as like, a person who should be able to understand things, you know, and, and I think so, so many people fall into this mindset where they feel like they, they can't, they're too, and they're not smart enough to understand whatever it is. They have to just trust whoever is smarter than them mm -hmm. and, and follow them. But yeah, I mean, just, and that's science itself, right? The science is experimenting and looking at evidence and not just believing things without having the proof. Yeah, yeah. The way that I, you know, if I was going to make a pitch for how I had to come by trying to understand these things, and I'm by no means like perfect or whatever, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that like, uh, these are like really important questions that get neglected, I would say, just as you're saying, Fox, or, mm -hmm. you know, like you just sort of assume, you mm -hmm. know, or Alex, you were saying the same thing earlier. You're just like, oh, I'm just assuming that this is the correct thing because I've heard it so many times. It's just two, two really simple questions. And the first one is the technical question. How does this work? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is like the oldest political question in the world. Cui bono? Who benefits? Mm -hmm. Yep. And then from there, you can start to like cobble certain things together. So a really yeah. great example is, um, you know, uh, I don't, it's probably been a while since you guys have been to an airport, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you can see those like BP ads for like, um, wind that have like windmills and stuff mm -hmm. like that you yeah. know like wind turbines and like solar you know and it's just like oh like are we really winning like environmental victories here like even <laughs> yeah. bp is like taking yeah. ads out and the reason they're doing that is because the way that the grid is structured in america is that for however like x amount of renewables right weather dependent renewables so not hydro weather dependent renewables that's wind and solar you build out you're going to need y percentage more of backup. Mm -hmm. So what's that going to be? That's going to be natural gas mm. or nuclear. But natural gas, we have path dependency for, which means we're really good at making it very cheaply and it's resilient. So BP is taking a look at these renewable build outs and they're like, shit, we're always going to be in business the more people build <laughs> these things out. Like, this is great for us. Which we makes love environmentalism. Makes total sense. Yeah. And how hard is it to even, I mean, you just explained it to us, but like, you know, that's a lot of like, that's a lot of explaining for like a regular person, uh, you know, to be skeptical, to see the ad and to have a reaction to it. Like you'd have to, you'd have to be, have some kind of like fucked up ideation to like go through life and look at every single ad and, and analyze it and, and like uncover why like this company is saying this thing. I'm not saying that people aren't capable of doing it. 
I know I do it and I think we all probably do that. Um, but man, like it's so, it's so twisted, like the different incentives they have. And well, the thing that keeps popping into my head is like, I, I mean, the big takeaway from this. So, you know, I, I was, re- I was reviewing your article in the bellows. Um, we need new, we need a nuclear new deal, not a green new deal. And you're basically making the case for nuclear. And I've heard many people make the case for nuclear and it makes sense, right? It, it's like, it takes up way less space. Uh, it's not dependent on the wind blowing or the sun shining. Um, it's clean, it's efficient. Like, of course it's not perfect, but it seems like a no brainer when people explain just like the basics about it, how it, it just seems like a no brainer. And it's like, why, what's happening behind the scenes that is, <laughs> that like, why is it getting stopped all over the place? And why is wind and solar getting pushed so much harder? Why, why are solar panels going up all over the fucking place, but everyone hates nuclear, you know, like it, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I think that that's where we have to have recourse to, to our own history. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm meaning to look a little bit more into this because I think there are even deeper explanations than what I can offer here. Um, but if we take a look at like France in the 70s, their response to things like the oil crises or whatever is they have one of the most successful nuclear buildouts in history. It's not that they met zero resistance with that, by the way, they met plenty, but they also had a, you know, uh, they had the institutional frameworks to do a big state project like that. Well, America has often really struggled with that. Um, on Exhaust, my show, we often talk about the tensions between the Jeffersonian tradition and the Hamiltonian tradition, right? So in other words, small is beautiful, local government, states' rights, versus like centralization, big states' projects, you know, things like that. Mm. In other words, between the laissez-faire and the dirigist state-oriented developmental perspectives on how America was going to become a post-colonial entity, Mm. right? So how does that play out in like the 60s, 70s or whatever? Well, I really do think, and I don't have anything to prove this, but I think it's very convenient that like um, all these things happen like around with basically what are hippie reactionary ideas. They're like totally Mm -hmm. romantic. And then eventually that just becomes like part of like state department perspective like Russia, like the Soviet Union, the big industrial giant that has like nuclear and like the Chernobyl meltdown later on or whatever. Like Mm. these things work really well together, right? And creates a pessimism of modernism. Now, if you're living through the seventies, there are really good reasons to start feeling that. The oil crises, the environmental movement picks up and it's not that there isn't any environmental damage being done. There's plenty, my mom grew up in Michigan and River Rouge, which was like sort of the sewage output basically for the mm. Ford plant there, never froze in the winter. Mm. It was so polluted, right? Mm. So it, it makes sense that people are there. But when we take a look at like what starts to happen with the neoliberal turn and the shift away from more New Deal type perspectives, though I don't necessarily think the New Deal is what everybody thinks it is. It's not yeah. like we just became like a... European social democracy Mm. within the space of a few years. But there were like things like the TVA, which were state funded. Uh, We're shifting out of that mode. We're offshoring jobs at the same time. We're 
moving into the post-industrial economy, mm. right? So we have these material things happening and then we have these cultural things happening at the yeah. same time. Mm-hmm. And that creates a level of technical and political, again, to use this phrase, path dependency that we haven't picked up. Like if we take a look at people that really cut their teeth in this era of America, a lot of them are still politically relevant. You know what I mean? Like people who came up in the new left, like John Kerry, great example, mm-hmm. still around, still running shit somehow. You know, in the same way that the second Bush administration, George W. Bush, like it was a sleeper cell for the Ford administration. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party has really just been like this zombified version of <laughs> the worst elements of the new left. Yeah. Put in a business suit and then you like know, propped up in front of C-SPAN. Yeah. Like that's I mean, basically part of what's going on here. And, you know, that period in the 70s is so interesting. We talked about it a little bit on previous episodes, but um, all these things came out at the same time. So the population bomb uh, by Frank Ehrlich came out. Oh so God, rebirth, yeah. <laughs> the rebirth of Malthusianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Small is Beautiful by uh, Schumacher, Schumacher came out um, all around the same time. You know, Paul Ehrlich was going on the Tonight Show dozens of times Yes. Um, to talk about his theories. And then was, there was one and, more. And, then, and Earth Day, and these people were all part of, yeah. like Ehrlich mm-hmm. was part of the first Earth Day. Um, yeah, the, the environmental movement kind of birthed out of there. And then it, it, it joined forces with the new left. It like basically melded with the new left. And, and it, it, it seems like it's been a, a through line since then. And, and now we see like these are the biggest topics that the, you know, the popular new new left is taking on is, is environmentalism. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it has a very strong narrative of degrowth and what you would what you just alluded to this you know small is beautiful um you know mm-hmm. pessimistic yeah this like um laissez yeah, climate trauma individual know, like yeah individual choices consumer choices um i mean it it, it all <laughs> meshes perfectly with with all that stuff and 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 the people like us who say like no, the nuclear just makes more sense or, mm-hmm. you know, industry, you know, centralization, <laughs> all this stuff makes more sense. That seems to be a very uh, minority opinion within people who consider themselves on the left or I don't even know like what left and right even are anymore. Oh, I'm I'm in deep confusion about what that means at this <laughs> point anymore too. I think that's a common feeling. I think if you're actually like, you know, trying to answer the two questions, how does it work and who benefits? It's going to be incredibly confusing to figure out like what the political constellations are here. Yeah. Especially because politics is so much cultural expression now. Yeah. That that gets difficult to sort out. You know, I mean, I think the return of like Malthusian, like that stuff is just so dark and very worrying. And it also speaks to the fact that I mean, it's just such a suburban ideology that exists. On the, it's just like things just appear in the fucking grocery store. You know, <laughs> like who cares if like our energy is weather dependent or whatever? It's just like, oh yeah, like I want my dialysis machine to work on work only when the wind blows. Yeah, know? and I want <laughs> it to be, yeah, and I want it to be locally made from recycled materials. Right, right, exactly. And, and I want my dialysis machine, when it breaks down, I want them to do like a repair cafe where like a month later, maybe there'll be a guy at the repair cafe that can fix the dialysis machine. Your, your nurse is a mutual aid. Uh... Oh my God. <laughs> She's just doing yeah, mutual yeah. aid. Volunteer. 
Yeah. Just doing the, yeah. yeah, just doing the mutual aid. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think that there's, um, I think there's some people that are cynical in the world. I'm not going to try to identify them because I think it's actually very hard to read people's hearts. Um, yeah. And, uh, and people contradict themselves. I do too. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to try to like name names in that way, but I can say that there are people who are like routinely wrong and it never matters. Yeah. And that that's, um, that's part of how this discourse works. Hmm. Like it can't, it, like one of the difficulties that happens, I mean, like Tocqueville talks about this. I know he's a French aristocrat or whatever, but I still think he had interesting things to say is that democracy is going to have a very uneasy relationship with expertise. And we've already identified it as we've been talking, right? We're looking at the ad and she's like, what type of person is going to be able to put on the they live glasses and like, try to sort this out? And then like, how would you lead someone else through that? Or how do we collectively make decisions that can assimilate um, people's right to decide for themselves with the fact that there are just material limits on certain things you can do? Yeah. You know, what do we do in other words, when democracy makes the quote unquote wrong decision? Right. Oh, those are powerful questions I don't have the answer to, but yeah. they're all in the running here. Mm. And I think it's important to be sensitive to them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And then that goes back to like free speech and like, you know, we should let everyone have like a, a platform to speak. We shouldn't censor people. We should want the worst ideas out there so that people can argue them down. But that also gets in the way of the fact that like a lot of people who have bad ideas you know, are out there and they don't get argued down. There isn't a meritocracy of ideas, yeah. you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it's tough. Yeah, well, but... and usually they would be the ones that would be deciding the limits on free speech anyway. Right. And so yeah, there's that problem right. too, is that that's going to default right. to whoever has the most power. Right. Right. And, and this new, and this new thing, or not, maybe it's not new, but this thing where the terms and the boundaries of what's acceptable are determined by these giant interests that uh, want to frame everything in a very beneficial way to them, which is why, uh, you know, Emmett, I saw a funny tweet you had about something, something about like, you know, any um, being called like a, a crack cracker with three. Oh yeah. My co-author, it. my co-author, <laughs> co-author Adrian, anytime he's, you know, he's yeah. Mexican American. So anytime he's like, you know, being like this identity politics stuff is weird and I don't like being a fetishized racial group. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's kind of fucked up. Like you could just watch the retweets roll in with like other people being like, you cracker with three Ks or whatever. And it's just like mystifying to watch happen. Yeah. That's how it gets pleased when he's just like, yeah, I mean, I don't really think that it's like, you know, I think the developing world should be able allowed to develop however the fuck it wants. And that trying to impose limits on that is basically, it's just like you cracker, like capitalist, like whatever, you know, <laughs> and, and that's how that stuff gets policed. Right. I mean, there are always, there are always going to be limits to any discourse. There's no such thing as a boundless discourse. I think, you know, the internet to me, the way it works now, social media is a great object listen in, maybe I'm being a little bit ungenerous here, but I would say like um, the failure of the Habermasian discursive democratic model where it's like everyone gets to have their say. And then if they have their say, you know, then we can all say it's a democracy. It's like, well, that's not- Come to a consensus, yeah. Right, right. And it's not that discourse isn't important because it's vital to any sort of democratic government governance. You have to be able to experiment, to err out ideas, to have the freedom to fail, make mistakes, and figure out how to learn from them as a society that respects people there. 
but you can't have this naive view that there isn't a such thing as like power or there aren't mm. interests that shape this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's something um, actually we, we read about this and we, we had on um, that guy from the Bunga, the Bunga cast. George, George, George Horror. Horror. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. George he, seems like a sweet guy. It, yeah. He was yeah. Really he's really cool. Um, so he talked about, you know, a term called moral minoritarianism and it referenced specifically Extinction Rebellion, where, um, you know, something that all these NGOs are doing, that the ones that talk about kind of a degrowth, regenerative economics thing, um, part of that, and a just transition, they call it too, um, part of that is this kind of uh, thing called people's assemblies, where, you know, it's rooted in being <laughs> deeply terrified of majorities, it's being deeply terrified of what people will come up with if left to their own, you know, devices as like just these brutal, idiotic people. So we have to have people's assemblies to kind of manage these people and to get them into rooms where, you know, they, we put up some paper on the, the walls and we can all like write down our ideas and feel heard. And then the people in charge get to do what they want, which is like kind of this new, the new model that we're moving towards away from, um, mm -hmm. away from like maybe the, the, classical liberal world that we all are familiar with well, and more towards this kind of neo-feudalism they're afraid of the like, tyranny of the majority yeah. right exactly. well I, I would say yeah they're afraid of that i would also say that you know one of my worries about the left is that especially over like the last year or so i've watched it just sort of become and it's probably been this for a while but like a really good avant-garde hr policy generator <laughs> for <laughs> corporations the democratic party and yeah. i think that these things are they're like straight out of an hr textbook yep you know like make sure everybody feel basically emotionally placate everyone yeah. and then like guide them down the path right yeah yep. like that's so here's a great lesson from history in that right make like, them make them feel like it's their idea right but totally sorry. yeah go on so when we uh when the colonies have the constitutional convention right uh one of the only guys who shows up with the plan is james madison so who gets to decide the terms of how most of the constitution gets decided? It's going to be James yeah. Madison, right? Because he showed up. And that's basically what like this like HR type thing is really doing. You know, mm. it's like they're going to decide the terms on which you vent your feelings or whatever and feel heard, which means that then they get to decide how it's going to be summed up. Those are the parameters. Those are the limits. Yeah. That are going to be yeah whatever grievance you have in that format then gets absorbed. And maybe you have a really good idea and they, they're able to like t twist it into like, they take the the optics of what you're saying um, and are able to reflect it back to you, but it's it's just going back to reinforcing the structure that they've built. Yeah, it's one of the maddening things about um, being alive today is that it feels like more <laughs> and more nothing does what it says on the tin. Mm. Yep. And that's profoundly frustrating and demoralizing. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's I'd... really hard to work through that. And to, yeah. especially if you don't have a lot else in your life that stabilizes you, that yeah. anchors you, that gives you a sense of meaning, it can inspire wildly apathetic feelings yeah. about what's going on around you. Yeah. Well, that's why we have movies that are made for white men, like falling down. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the plot of falling down, basically. It's like, oh, life, life isn't what it's, what it's supposed to be. So I'm mad. <laughs> yeah, I'm mad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing is sort of happening here with what happens with the arguments like for renewables via nuclear or something like that. 
And I've said before that there's sort of this um, epistemological problem, this lack of engineering discipline. Um, but I also think it's sort of, you know, I don't want to sound like too uh, like right-wing decadence accusing when I say this, but one of the things that's happened is that we have created an incredibly wealthy society in America that was very industrially powerful for a long period of time. And we offshored a lot of that. And I think part of what happens along with some other things playing a role in this is that we basically like forget or don't understand the way shit works. Mm. We're very distant from how that happens now. Mm right? Like the plant isn't something that you grow up with integrated in your life in like Michigan. Like my mom's dad, who I never got to meet, he died when she was, she was young, but he had an eighth grade education, came back from World War II, worked on the GM line, worked his way up to management. My grandma Peggy's wife never had to work and he raised four kids. You see what I'm saying? But that meant that these, this company my mom's eighth grade education, that part of the science unit was the internal combustion engine, mm. right? Because Detroit was the motor city. And so I think we've, it's easy to forget because we're Americans and we're quite good at forgetting um, what you lose when you lose these things, right? So another way that I think about it is like this. Just learn to code. I, yeah, just learn to code. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think we tend to do more than we know that we're doing. So when you lose an ability, you lose more than you recognize. And it takes a long time for some of those results to show up. And if you're wealthy, like the United States is wealthy, despite its inequalities, it means you've got an enormous margin for error mm. with these sorts of things. That's why you can get away with fragilizing the grid to all get out. Mm. And nobody's asking too many questions until it gets really bad because stakes, it takes a long yeah. time. Yeah. for anyone to really feel that and not just anyone but to people who are empowered and have a stake in other words to like bourgeois and up mm -hmm. you know this country is very willing to let the poor and working class suffer whatever it is right and because they're atomized disorganized and yeah. often demoralized hmm. they take it through honestly like no fault of their own in a lot of ways um but for people in the upper bracket to really start feeling it and working at it and trying to figure out how to solve the problems you know yeah that's this, where we are now this really has me has my gears going here because i'm thinking about like okay so there's this like dislocation basically from reality that happens mm -hmm. when you you reach a certain level of affluence in society and so you get these people who are sitting around really disconnected from how the world actually works how how the wheels work <laughs> and they're they're just sort of sitting there on their thumbs and 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 machinating about like things that just don't, and it, it, it almost like distorts their brain and they, they don't, they want to return back to that. It's like this return to monkey kind of thing, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but like they don't <laughs> fucking know how, like they think it's going back to poverty or something, or they, they kind of fetishize poverty. I mean, I, I feel like veganism is a really good example of this because people are so disconnected from how food gets to their plate. And then they start to feel bad that animals have to die. And it's like, yeah, animals have to die no matter what, if you eat vegan or whatever, but they, they, they start to connect like, oh, me eating an animal is like, making animals mm -hmm. die and it's it's this like 
perverse disconnection from like how shit actually works and you 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 sense that something's wrong but you don't know how to fix it because you're so dislocated from it i don't know it, 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 no I, th- I think that that's part of it you know i think that um i try really hard I, i'm bad at it on twitter <laughs> um but when uh when i'm like on record and people can hear my voice i try really hard not to like dunk hard <laughs> on people yeah um, i've I've never fucking liked it when that's happened to me, mm. uh, even when I was deserved it, yeah. uh, you know, but I get that people are looking around and they're scared. I get that the future feels uncertain that we live as Christopher Lash put it in a world of diminishing expectations. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but it's very difficult to imagine how it can be different. And I think that, it's easy to say like, well, we should just do nuclear. Like, yeah, I agree. I say that like, like 10 times, ask my fucking wife, you know, she has to deal (laughs) with that shit. Um, You know, but uh, having the ability to do so and being able to maintain a societal vision that can bring people to that is an incredible challenge. Yeah. You know, and I very much understand the extinction rebellion people. (laughs) I get it. I really do. Like there, when I see that, I don't want to like over psychologize them, but based on like, I've done a ton of research on these people. I've well, sat through all sorts of YouTube videos and stuff like that. They're before scared. you, go, go, before ahead, you go, go into that though, like, are you, when you say the extinction rebellion people, do you mean the people that like work directly for the NGO or do you mean the people that yeah. they're, they're street, <laughs> yeah. the, the street theater, like the people that it resonates with? Because obviously it's very, yeah. Like, I mean, I guess arresting. I would mean, I guess I would mean both, but um I understand that there are going to be some people who fall outside of the Venn diagram of those two groups. In other yeah. words, like obviously, um, but okay. uh, so I didn't mean to, to derail. No, 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 no. I think it's good. It's good to ask for that level of specificity, right? To like, yeah. who is the who's the thou here, right? You know right. that I'm addressing. Well, we. I mean, we come in, we come into that a lot when we, when we critique um, the mode of like nonprofit organizing mm-hmm. and movements and how you know civil society is like it's much bigger than most people realize it is. And even movements like Black Lives Matter, like, like they're literally like the local chapter here disavowed the national chapter, you know, for, yeah. its, for being the griftery. Um, but to most people, it's all the same, you know, it's all the same. Like the, it's be- all the, the same people, thing. right. Um, I mean, let me put author- it this way. The authorship matters, I feel like, but. Right, right. I think that, let me put it this way. There seems to be like a minimum program of ideas that people work for Extinction Rebellion and who vibe with Extinction Rebellion uh, agree to. And part of it is the pessimism and the apocalypticism. Mm. Yeah. Right. I think that's fair to say. Mm. I would be, I don't think there's anybody who's involved with that group that's like, you know, what's great growth. You know, like, yeah, you right. know, I'd love to see more yeah. industry in the world. You know, I don't, I'd be very you know, surprised to hear somebody with like the the like yeah. weird hourglass like, thing. I'm like, I'm gonna mine yeah. some Bitcoin this weekend and check right. it out. Yeah, it yeah, sounds yeah. pretty dope. I mean, the name yeah. of it, extinction. Like I mean, Jesus was, Christ. Right. Exactly. Right. Who's going okay, extinct? So we're. No, wait. I thought there were too many of us. We're going extinct too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think. To, to me, it's it's sort of like, if we look at what's happening around us, I mean, I think COVID has made things like very clear that um, were maybe debatable before, but the extent to which we live in a painfully frightened alone society mm. 
where people are disconnected from each other is now been literalized by this pandemic um, in a way yeah. that it felt a little bit more figurative before, mm-hmm. you know? So I get where they're coming from. And I, I don't want to just say, fuck them. At the same time, it's hard not to get pissed at like leftists, like, you know, or whoever, like David Wallace Wells, you know, I saw, I tweeted, tweeted this like thing that he wrote where he was just like, you know, Bitcoin has basically like <laughs> rendered moot, like all of the solar panel production of the last like 20 yeah. years. And I was just like, why is this about what Bitcoin's using and not about like why solar panels suck so hard <laughs> <Yeah>. that, cause <laughs> that would have been true if a developing com- country like really started to build steam that would have happened then. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, why isn't this a critique of solar and okay. why is it a critique of, of you, Bitcoin? It's a good question to ask. You, you said before, it's the dunk economy. I mean, yeah. he's going to get more engagement. I don't know who this person even is, but they're going to get more engagement by making a dunk, turning it into a dunk rather than speaking a larger truth that has no like answer to it, you know, like yeah. that kind yeah. of shit. I mean, Just, well, yeah. Wallace Wells is like the, the um, auteur of collapse porn. Um, I, if I'm thinking of the right guy, it's the guy who wrote The Uninhabitable Earth, oh, which was a New York <laughs> magazine, one of the most read things that either the New Yorker or New York magazine ever put out. Um, and it had as these images, like <clears throat> somebody's like everything, all the images for the article were like everyday objects, but like covered in dust and looking like <laughs> oh, fossils. God. One of them was like a human skull and like oh. a radiator or something. <laughs> and I was like, fucking Jesus Christ. Sicko like, shit. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like uh, to me, like that's like that's on par with like Q stuff, like Bradley Trammell making yeah. the point that it's like all the excitement of scaring the shit out of yourself and the safety of your own living room. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort totally. Of, like, what that becomes, you know, and it's hard. It's not titillating. To be, like, really... Yeah, yeah, it's titillating. You know, um, it does feel like there are not a lot of uh, realms of accessible like. I don't know drama or something like that. Well, mm. well, that's why I kind of that's why I kind of asked for the clarification on like, you know, who who you have more empathy for because in my opinion, like the people that are authoring this kind of stuff with Extinction Rebellion, um, the people that are making the sausage, I think they know on some level that they're expo- they're exploiting uh, these this loneliness, mm. these sentiments, these fears that people have, um, and they're creating like a consumable product for them to like donate to and to feel good about or to like indulge their pessimism. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like way less empathy for the people kind of putting, putting the product out into the world. We're part of the, the MLM people are, scheme. People, yeah, who, right, are yeah. bu- people then, who are buying the Tupperware so that yeah. they can start their and own I'll go business. Even fur- <laughs> and I'll go even further to like compare it to kind of like, you know, mobile, let's say like a mobile game market marketing where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, mobile games are looking for the whales. Like they're not, they don't care about like you or me, like paying like a dollar or $5 to like unlock some shit in a mobile game. Like they want to unlock like the people that are addicted to it and they can't get enough of it. And they're going to like spend hundreds of dollars on like their credit card to unlock stuff in the game. And, you know, that, that's where I, 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 I see like a little bit of, you know, I don't have as much empathy for the people making the stuff for like who are, authoring these ideas and then trapping people into this like yeah i would say that my empathy level fluctuates based on my day and you've caught me in quite an empathetic (laughs) mood um uh today because i mean i 
you know, I don't mean to some, harp on that either. No, no, no. But yeah. you you do see deeply cynical shit out there. Yeah. Like, that's really, I remember one guy really came at Adrian and I for our land use um, visual uh, in our piece for the bellows where we say like, this is what the land use is going to look like if we did the entire grid in wind, solar, or nuclear. And for wind and solar, it's like almost the land mass of Ohio. Mm. And to generate the terawatt hours needed for the entire grid in nuclear, it's smaller than the city of Chicago. Yeah. And they were like, don't you know, we can farm under you know, uh, wind turbines and stuff like that. That's what they came at with me with. Like oh, the, the wind what? thing is totally off. And I was just like, uh. what forever? Like for all <laughs> of the wind turbines you're gonna need for the entire grid, like you're gonna be able to farm under that. Also oh. like no one wants that. <laughs> okay, so here's a, here's a nice little, little like thing to keep in your back pocket, right? Is like, I've, I've learned this over the years. I talked with people who were anti-wind activists for a very long time. They had very interesting things to say. That's so um, niche, anti-wind yeah. activists. <laughs> well, because they live in flyover country and they have to deal uh, with yeah. this shit. And they are yeah. farmers, yeah. you know, and uh -huh. stuff like that. Because that's where that stuff gets built. Yeah. And why does it get built there? Well, one, because that's where the land is. But two, most importantly, it's away from like the urban hubs where mm -hmm. these uh, people who are deciding these things actually yeah. live. Yep. So it destroys quality of life there. Like, I don't know about all the science about like the, the how the flickering of, uh, you know, because they spin so fast, it makes things like flicker because of the way the blades interact. I don't know if that's all like scientifically true or not. But you mean they're not just these big, beautiful, like giants yeah. oh, in the field that are By just... the way, by the way, I would encourage anybody to look into the rules for how, how the wind industry has to report killing endangered species. Hmm. Like hmm. it is totally captured by the industry, hmm. completely captured by, there's no way you can put dozens of big metal fans in the sky and it is not <laughs> slaughtering the shit out of birds. Right? Yeah. Like, because they, so they, the way they measure it is like, there's like, okay, you got a hundred meters from like the center of yeah. the turbine. Okay. If you're a Falcon diving hmm. at like hundred plus miles per hour yeah. and you hit a turbine blade going faster than that, there is no way in hell unless the hand of God smacks it like a ping pong paddle back into that like so what circle. If, what if we put it's gonna be there? What if we put baskets around the turbines so we can have like chick, <laughs> right, you, just, you know chicken salad bodies. chicken yeah, salad yeah, yeah. just rains from the sky? Oh my god, raining down. Our... But the th the thing I was gonna say, like the, the thing to keep in the back pocket is that the closer you live to these things, the more you hate them. Right, right. Yeah. The farther away you live, the more you like them. And the opposite is true for nuclear, well, right? So if you go to Illinois, where the IBEW is very militant about keeping Byron and Dresden alive there, right? Those nuclear plants, mm. those people understand what nuclear does. It brings in, first of all, you can work your way up in nuclear. It's very hard to find that anymore. Mm. Two, it creates an ecosystem of unions. So good labor jobs mm. that can be handed down generation after generation. Mm. Right. So it's not just IBEW and these larger things. It's like local pipe fitters 101, you know, or like whatever. Like those guys are there too because the plant needs them. And so it raises the standard of living there. I don't think that there has been a single community where they have put a ton of turbines or whatever where that has happened. Yeah. Right. Where it has raised uh, the standard of living. I mean, Homer Simpson was buying his family lobster for dinner. So. Like obviously he was doing pretty well. Yeah, people are just like, how is that possible? Like, bro, I was like, because he works at a nuclear plant. I know. <laughs> that's, 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 
you'd think the Simpsons would be like this like great propaganda for nuclear, but I guess maybe not because Homer's an idiot. So everyone thinks like, it's just idiots who work. In- well, he's, yeah. the, he's the everyman, you know, he's like, he <laughs> yeah. has a good job. Like Marge doesn't have to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one interesting thing I want to like bring up is this, what pops into my head when we talk about, and I'm looking at this graphic where, you know, the wind taking up all that space and the solar taking up all that space and then talking about like, farming and being able to farm under the wind turbines so in my head what what flashes is you know land use you know Mm -hmm. like this is a land grab this almost seems like a land grab thing to Mm -hmm. me and maybe maybe i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about but i don't know it just seems too convenient that this whole thing is like it's a convenient way for the powers that be to snatch up giant swaths of land because they mm-hmm. need it for their, you know, thing that takes up all this space. And it ju- totally. it's just so convenient that, oh, this solution to like climate change mm-hmm. is this thing that just takes up all this land. Oh, well, we're just gonna have to buy up all this land. It, right. it, it, just, it just seems too convenient to me <laughs> that, yeah. So I think what's happening in Texas now is sort of a front row seat. This. I've been sort of working on a piece about this. Uh, over time, I've sort of developed what I call my decline maxim. Like, when do you know society is in decline? And I think one of the things you could say is that um, it's when uh, the immediate financial interests of the elite start to undermine the material foundations of hmm. their status. Hmm. That's what's happening in Texas right now, right? So Amazon's real business isn't making sure that you get your shitty sneakers on time, right? That's not really where they make their money. They make their money by doing lots of computing stuff for the Department of Defense. Mm. That is energy intensive work, Mm. right? Okay, I mean, so is basically their whole logistics chain. So I guess we can add that too. Why not? We'll do it all. All right, so Texas had those blackouts over February, right? And part of what happened there is a cold snap hit and the grid was fragile because they had spent like, billions of dollars on all of this wind which barely worked mm. and all the solar which didn't work at all and then they had all of this natural gas which delivers just in time but can get frozen in the pipeline and also experience pipe crowding mm. so when demand moved beyond their energy supply and the way the auction houses work for the grid in an iso like texas means that no one is allowed to keep fuel on hand because that would make it unfair in the market It meant that those blackouts happened. Now, the Texas legislature has learned from this and they're saying, okay, we want to start canceling these renewable projects or they have to start guaranteeing their own natural gas backups and maybe a few other things, right? They're working it out. Who's there against them? Well, it's Jeff Bezos. It's Apple. It's all of these groups that have a stake in these renewable things that are Hmm. actively fragilizing the material infrastructure upon which their own elite status relies. Hmm. Once you get into that cycle, it is very hard to break out. I like when I think of things that trouble me the most, it's not like sea levels rising or whatever. It's things like that. You know, yeah, we and we talk about that a lot too. Is that you, you can apply that to so many things? Where I think maybe people with us, uh, in my opinion, a more like naive analysis of things. People always assume that like 
the capitalists, the people in charge, they just want to maximize as much profit as possible, as quickly as possible. And that, that's all they want to do is the maximum profits all the time. And I don't think it's necessarily that anymore. I think like what we're seeing with the COVID lockdowns too, is like big businesses actually want the lockdowns to continue, or they want, they want people to stay home as much as possible because it's not necessarily about getting as many people out into the world to generate as much profit, but it's actually, you know, the, the, the control or the, um, you know, watching, just ha having, having uh, smaller businesses and smaller interests having to be, uh, deal with more instability and less, um, you know, less assurances for themselves makes it a more, uh, th there's something that is being served for these bigger interests. And it's the same thing with this. Like, yeah. you know, if, if, it's a, if it's a bad day for the energy grid, maybe Amazon will still get their power. Everyone else is going to have to like, figure out figure something out right um, yeah it's, just, it's and they, just, don't, they don't necessarily want it to be good for everybody it's this thing where people kind of think that it, capitalism is a, they have this cartoon understanding of capitalism where it's like scrooge mcduck or you know porky the capitalist who's just like yes we want lots of profit and business and growth <laughs> but really like it's about control it's about power it, it, it isn't even about it's like tra it's like transitioning away from even just like regular economic profit and and growth in that way and it's more about con controlling the systems controlling the populations controlling energy uh controlling land it, it, that's what it, i think it boils down to mm -hmm. yeah yeah or it becomes difficult to distinguish what's in the interest of the bottom line and what mm -hmm. gets those results yeah i would say yeah and that it's important to remember that just like there are different um fractions of the working class let's say like whether you're lumpen or unionized or non-unionized whatever they're going to be different fractions of capital you know so you get the sort of like artisanal bourgeois like restaurant owners and shit like that you have your gentry class mm. right which is something we don't really talk about in america anymore but those people really dominate your local political scene you know those are the chamber of commerce guys yeah, yeah. um and then, you know, you have the people like Bezos and stuff like that. Now, not all of them are going to agree on what's in their interest. Right. Right. Like they're going to have some of the same fights, some of the same problems. That's why if, you know, we're taking a look at an election in America, right? We get the sense that there are some like real disagreements here, even if broadly whoever's talking about these things agree. And that's because there's just infighting in classes. Yeah. Yep. You know, like some of it's just ideological, some of it's petty personal shit. Uh, and then some of it's actually like material and though they're fighting over that. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. I, I, I think people, yeah, don't really understand that. Yeah. That, that warring happens on the, the ownership level too. Um, but usually when it, things always end up working out for them either way, <laughs> yeah. the elites are fighting amongst themselves the same way we are, but the difference is that it ends up working out for them because they're the ones in power. I mean, mm -hmm. things might shift amongst them, but they definitely have a lot more, I hate to say it, but they do have more class solidarity than we do, but that's because it's, shit's a lot easier for them. The, the, you know, it's their game. It's their game to lose. So. I mean, they don't even necessarily need like what I would call like class solidarity is that they just have like totally, not totally, but very aligned material interests. Yeah. 
which yep. will just override tons of other things. Yep. They might not have any solidistic feelings or whatever, and it won't matter right. at the end of the day, right? right? Like that just doesn't, you know, their heart does not need to be in the game in that way. Right. It's, well, it's stronger than solidarity. Well, I mean, yeah, soli right. solidarity yeah. is just the squishy term for what you, what you literally just said, which is just aligned mm -hmm. material interests. Mm. Those are the yeah, same. You're right. You're right. Those Maybe are I'm responding same. to... You know, what, what I do is I translate all the like base materialist shit for all the like ooh, squishies <laughs> out there. That's like my, that's my job. Yeah. That's your thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, that sounds successful. I, apparently our job for our show is depressing the hell out of our listeners. We get a lot of feedback like that where somebody's just like, oh, a new episode's out. Can't wait to be upset for 36 hours. <laughs> I've, got, I've gotten that reply on a few of my videos and I'm like, yeah. whatever, you guys fucking like it. Yeah, Shut get up. over it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Like, I'm curious about you guys. I've watched like a few of the videos, listened to, to some of the podcasts. Like, cool. What, um, like, what's your trajectory here? I get the sense when <laughs> I like, when I, when I like experience your content that like there has been a similar process of changing your mind over yeah. time, suddenly realizing that people who are standing next to you might not actually be your comrade, yeah. you know, yeah. um, no matter how much they say and believe that they are and that that isn't a personal experience that's just like a structural or yeah. even ideological one. So sure. like, how did you come to do Space Commune? I mean, well, we started, like we started it a few years ago. We, we weren't really putting a whole lot into it in the beginning. We were just like, we want sort of a spot where we can kind of put our thoughts out there. And we, we weren't sharpened at that point. We were just sort of learning some things here and there. We had experience with some electoral stuff that really opened our eyes. But then we got into like DSA and all this stuff. And we had a lot to learn in that area too. And, and Oh, I was a delegate in 2017. I know, <laughs> I know how that goes. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing, right? Is that, you know, you, everyone talks about the post left and stuff, but, and, and everyone seems to like cool and like they already know everything, but it's like, I'm sure like most of the people who are considered post left we're probably in DSA at one point or something. And because that's how you like learn yeah. this stuff. You have to like sort of experience it. And that's how you can talk like confidently about it and say, you know what? I fucking tried mm -hmm. and I gave it, you know, I gave it a good college try. And there were problems here, systemic problems that could not be overcome, you know, from the, what I could do as a, an individual contributing to something. You, you just, you get right. to a point where you just can't, you hit a wall. Right. And I think what it comes down to too is that the the mystification of all things political. Uh, you know, like I like I like I said before about the Extinction Rebellion stuff, like there I see myself as someone that you know, maybe a few years ago, I remember for sure that like when AOC uh, and the uh, Sunrise movement kids were in Nancy Pelosi's office, I'm you know, I think that was like AOC had just gotten elected. It was like early 2018. I think it was and Diane I, Feinstein. Where she's oh yeah, just like get the fuck yeah. out. <laughs> right? Yeah, she was, I was like, like damn, base Diane. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, at the time, I I remember at the time I was like, oh, that's that's really bad, Diane Feinstein. Oh yeah, no, same, same. Now I look listen. back and I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I'm like based. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but at the time I was like, oh yeah, those kids, you know, they're a future, and um, 
you know, those kids and the teen Vogue articles that are coming out. Like, you know, I just had such an uncritical lens because I wanted so badly for it to, for it to all be real and for it to all be true. Like Fox said about, you know, the word copium before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, early, even early on with our like space commune stuff, I uncritically uh, believed in like kind of the culture war shit. Like I, I did a couple articles about like politics and gaming and like taking on that, like, you know, the culture war that we're still, that's still happening today, this mystification of like, oh, you know, these people that have, these people that are like resentful about culture changing are also Nazis and irredeemable white supremacists. Um, you know, I, I took all that on like somewhat uncritically and, um, you know, uh, now with like, I guess, I, I don't know if you saw Fox's video about uh, the nonprofit industrial complex. Cause that one probably shows like the jokerifying happening in real time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't checked that one. I think the, uh, maybe, maybe it's the same one. It's the one about, um, I watched your one about Fox about uh, Prager U, I think. Oh, with uh, bread, bread tube, the, the guy, yeah, Sean yeah, yeah. versus Prager U. That was kind of a, that was kind of a throwaway video. I, I mean, I like, I like my shorter content. It's like fun yeah. to just get some stuff out there, but it's like the longer stuff that I, I mean that that one, the the nonprofit one, and then the the longer bread two video that's almost fifty minutes long, were mm-hmm. really like deeper, you know, sort of thought projects. But send that one to me when we're done. I'd like sure. to watch it. Um, I think that that's it's vital to understand how that works. Um, you know, thanks thanks to Shia LaBeef Steak, peace be unto his name, uh, <laughs> for opening my eyes to uh, how uh, how civil society works. Um, but yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that. Like I have very similar sort of response to these things. I bought into a lot of that stuff. I mean, a lot of it, you know, it was frustrating, right? So what really woke me up, what, you know, I came from a democratic household, you know, and things like that. Like, that's not, that's not surprising um, that I had seen myself as a Democrat for a long time. But when I was really broke and like living near the poverty line in Tallahassee, Florida, for a few years, it was a very sobering experience. Then I got a job that lifted me out of that and I had the time to reflect and I tried reading Capital, um, Mm. the David Harvey lectures, you know, um, and just like brute force started to try to teach myself how these things things worked. Um, And what I realized, here's what I thought. I thought that everybody I was getting involved with had lived a life where they either had or were still living the reality I experienced struggling to make rent every month mm. in Tallahassee because that totally reshaped how I saw the world. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I'm not saying I was hundred percent right about the things that I thought or how I articulated that experience. And I'm probably still wrong about some things now, but that was how I imagined the similar stake of what was happening with the post 2016 left. Mm. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's not ended up what ended up happening. And actually what ended up happening was really impersonal. Mm. You know, there was a window where certain content got to be made and people could be very successful off of that. <laughs> there was a belief that I shared rather uncritically, which was that uh, Bernie would have won was the same thing as saying Bernie will win again. Right, mm. right. Right, that was a <clears throat> huge mistake. Yeah. You know. Um, and one that I probably could only have made um, that I had to make, frankly. 
to learn that. Who could, who couldn't make that mistake? That's the thing is like, who knew ahead of time, you know, probably very few people. There very few people were talking about it. I mean, like, you know, (laughs) uh, a lot of people who were talking very critically about it were finding themselves banned from Twitter. um, What was happening there, uh, to be honest, you know, like whatever else, whatever else one might say about like, you know, Amy or whatever. I don't want to get into that shit because it's fucking tedious. But she was like very right about what was happening. She, with a lot but of- I've heard that even she was like into Bernie the second time a little bit. That she, that oh she yeah. Was- I mean, that's you know, you start to. I was listening to what's left at the time, and you can yeah. watch that sort of change. You know, I think yeah. she had her wits about her, and maybe that was the yeah. benefit of being, frankly, in Australia and having right. distance from, and also just as Alex was saying, wanting to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Who didn't want to believe that that was going yeah. to be possible, yeah. right? That that was a thing that could really happen, you know? It, it, it seemed you know, like it, it could have too. It really like, it's like the, the Trump, the, the, the swell of excitement and populism behind Trump. A lot of those people were like, yeah, I would go for Bernie. I like Trump or Bernie. Like there was a lot of that. It seemed like, yeah. but if I they mean, knew about Bernie, they were like, okay. Yeah. They're just like he said. He said. He said what about immigration on Tucker? <laughs> I'm gonna vote for that guy. You know, well, like, you know the most. The most in my bubble, at least at the time, the most critical people I saw who were uh, talking about Bernie were like the anarchy kind of um, <laughs> set. You know, settlers build kind yeah. of people who were like making these like oh, extremely yeah, yeah. incredibly ultra critiques of Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Hello that. Kitty A Cab Crew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that that was like the main one. Where like. You know, but otherwise, yeah, I, I did not. I did not see any. I mean, everyone just w- was hoping that like he could uh, he could do something, and the whole like idea of of an Overton window and like shit. Totally, I, yeah. I remember even like oh god, like Sean McElwee, like his shit. I, I I believed in that stuff. Like I was like, yeah. oh, this guy, this guy is all you know, cool. This guy is uh, gonna push this data out there that's gonna like change people's minds. Totally. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be like the end of Johnny Mnemonic where they like send out the signal that like lets everybody know the corporation's bad. Everybody's like, oh my God. And then you see its spire exploding in the background. For some reason. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that I felt a lot of that stuff too. The thing that actually started to give me a sick feeling in my stomach was when I really started to learn more about how the grid and nuclear worked. Mm. And I realized that I didn't support the Green New Deal. Mm. Yeah. And like while Bernie was running and I, like, I remember making calls and, you know, wanting to show up and do my duty, but then also being like, if this guy wins and like that plan, like gets through, like, that's bad. Like that's going to be a net bad for society. You know, that and like were... really admitting that was fucking hard. Yeah. yeah. It was really funny. I remember um, some sunrise kids came to like protest our, you know, we have a very like neoliberal kind of uh, Clyburn esque, you know, congressman here in, in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, these, these sunrise kids came and I, you know, I, I loathe the guy's politics. So I like, and this was a couple of years ago. So like I should, you know, it was down the street from where I worked. I, I went out on my, you know, at lunchtime to like, see what they were up to. And I remember they were marching up and down the street in front of his office and they were shouting like green new deal, make it real green new deal, make it real. And they kind of were running out of steam and like, uh, so I was walking with them and like we passed by, I know there's like an architecture firm that has like a solar array in their backyard. 
and I remember one of the kids like grabbed the the, uh, the bullhorn. He was like, "You see those solar panels over there? That's what we need." <laughs> you know? And I remember even at that time, I was like, "Wait a second, <laughs> this this is like a bourgeois, like mm-hmm. you know, they're they have this like solar panel array, like they don't give a shit about the environment, like you, <laughs> you know, like this is like just these people are are not like." in solidarity with us you know these are like this is this is not it chief mm-hmm. uh so like at that moment i was like wait a second what the fuck's going on here and yeah. like i said like you know you know the the economy that that was developed by bernie and now is being exploited by bernie and like the justice democrats and the squad is like mm-hmm. they're selling this product to the people that still want to believe that you know i personally i believe dsa is still like indulging people in like that Bernie fever dream, the people that don't want to stop believing. Um, and even like, you know, the Gravel, the Gravel Institute's a great example where it's oh, like, Oh God, dude, like that yeah. is, <laughs> they <laughs> built a brand. They built a brand on like selling people this idea. They're like, we need to put the date, the information out there and we're going to push everything left. And now like it's created this, like this business, you know, where yeah. it's like make a recurring donation to keep putting the information out there because we're fighting a war that well, is going to be won with your bread tube has the same, has the same, uh, you know, trajectory. It was like that time yeah. it was from like from 2016 when the, the Trump mania started and everyone's like, Holy shit, what the fuck's happening? Yeah. And, and then it was like, Oh, the left is rising up now to meet this, this time. And, you know, all these things grew. So like bread tube grew the burning, mm-hmm movement grew and, and all these things grew and then we got to the, like this year and shit just like the mask just fell straight the <laughs> fuck off yeah and everyone's right. like what the fuck did did we just build up here well i think to me the way i think about this is you know there's something she goes by a default friend on twitter and i like her podcast she does with her co-host personality girl i love also i love their like handles i think they're hysterical Who, this podcast called after the orgy um, default friend. And she runs a Substack, and she wrote a small piece called the um, culture of confession that sort of looks at the think piece, exogene culture, et cetera, that happens during the Obama years. Hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about after reading that piece and hearing her talk about it on her podcast, um, I don't agree with her with everything, but it's provocative and helpful, I think, to have even tried to capture this piece of internet history. Because what we're really talking about here is we're talking about a certain like sliver of the media, a fraction of the media, and how it comes to perpetuate its message and succeed. And part of that's NGO related. And part of that is uh, mom and pop shops like you guys and me, um, Mm. you know, or whatever, or the Chapo crew or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, and how that comes to be. And one of the things that I've thought about is like trying to do some self-critique here how did I get so easily seduced? How, why was I, I thinking critically? And some of it was because I was, I wanted these things to be real. So that's always going to be a problem for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, another part of it was that I had been acculturated to this very pathetic argument culture that came through this whole think piece sphere 
around then. That was very much the culture of letters in the Obama years. So in other words, things were valid because you divulged them. Pathetic in the traditional, like Aristotelian sense, pulls at your heartstrings. It's not actually trying to make a rational argument that the reading of the personal as political was that what was going on in your heart was in fact political in and of itself because it was happening in you who's in society. Not the way I think Mark Fisher likes to put his spin like on it. It's like standpoint theory. Right, which is that part of your experience is actually deeply impersonal mm. <laughs> and has fucking nothing to do with you, but you live through it anyway, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And when I look at who succeeds in BreadTube, who succeeds in all these areas, they were people who were near my age, acculturated in this as well, that were used to a type of confessional, pathetic argument that mm. onboarded people into their perspective. Mm. And that that was a necessary element to the politics of post-2016 for the left. And that people would say, well, I'm a materialist, I'm doing this. But if you actually look at the arguments, they really rely on a certain level of moralizing. Yeah. And that there's actually a really direct line to that culture of confession to, I would say, what we've watched play out over the past five years. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> also, I also blame I blame so much on uh, uh, Michael Schur, the guy that like <laughs> co-creator of The Office. Then he went on to Parks and Rec, and mm -hmm. then he went on to The Good Place. The good Place. And oh like, he, God, yeah, yeah. He's like so he he is so synonymous with. I mean, I enjoy the. I watch The Office like bedtime, like to go to sleep. Oh, totally. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'll I'll quote it all day. But like, he's. I mean, he, I I find that like when I think of the Obama years, I just think of parks and rec for some reason, because mm -hmm. I just picture like these like lanyard, like neoliberal people who think that, you know, they're going to like optimism their way into government and like mm -hmm. make everything better. And, and then for some reason, I feel like the Bernie, at least for me, the Bernie stuff was like rebelling against those people and saying like, you know, Oh, like you're, you're free for, for idolizing Joe Biden. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, you know, we need, like, we need a different kind of politics. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. No, but, but I, and I don't think that's, yeah. I mean, that was an attractive gesture. Right. But like, yeah. what is that really, if I'm being honest with myself and how I felt at the time yeah. and like where I'm from, right. Is where that was from? my, so I'm from Illinois, but I mean like okay. what's happened, what's happened to me, like my class background, no uh -huh. class yeah. kid went to private school. Hmm. You know, I had an experience of being very broke uh, for an extended period of time with who, and I became friends with a lot of people who were just living that life. Hmm. It wasn't this thing that just happened to them, right? It was, right. they were blue collar kids, you know, who so, happened so to the my fancy, friends. the fancy word is pro, you were proletarianized or yeah, 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 for a brief exactly. time, right? Yeah. Yeah. For a brief time. Okay. What was happening there was my resentment against my peers who hadn't had to deal with that and who had no need to come to the conclusions that I was coming to. Hmm. Like if I'm really honest with myself, it's a lot of self-awareness. Yeah. Where I'm if I'm really honest with myself, where that yeah. some of that was coming from, I was fucking pissed. I mean, first of all, that's a very like spoiled child. I was pissed that something <laughs> bad had to happen to me. Right. And that was part of what was happening. Hmm. Yeah. And that was what was so seductive about sort of the dirtbag culture and the hmm. pathetic arguments around the confessional thing is that it wasn't really asking more of me than how I already felt. Hmm. Resentment is fine in politics. You're never going to get rid of it. That's going to be an engine to whatever you do, but it's not an analysis. And the yeah. only way it can look like an analysis is if you have been trained to see that type of emotivism as an argument in and of itself. Hmm. Hmm. 
that's yeah, a I, difficult place to be if you're trying to understand the world around you and create a political movement. Yeah, I, I've and I've seen some people make this point about Medicare for all and about student debt cancellation that they are they're they went so viral among like people like us because they appealed to like downwardly mobile or people at the risk of being proletarianized. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I buy it about Medicare for all, but certainly the student debt thing, you know, yeah. most people, most people aren't in a lot of student debt, but the, the people that are, are the people that are highly involved in the democratic primary process. You know, people that are like Elizabeth Warren voters and a lot of Bernie voters and a lot of, you know, maybe a lot of Buttigieg voters too. People that are in a lot of college debt for something that doesn't make them a lot of money probably. Oh, and that's a that's a concern where it's like, oh, is that really a work a worker's concern, or is this a concern of like a subset of the Democratic Party? And you know, I am not sure who made that point, but someone did, and you know, I I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that ever. No, neither have I, because again, I had that experience of being proletarianized, and I was like, that eh, close enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> yeah. Like what? That's what I was doing there, and part of it was just that I was young and unsophisticated, and. My understanding of the world part of it was also that like there is a long stretch of my life where i never heard the word capitalism once never in school i didn't start hearing the word capitalism until after 2008. think about yeah. that think about like think about that in terms of like having a, a body politic that understands the society it's lived in and its governing ideology and material structure is almost never named yeah you're gonna have a huge deficit when it comes to trying to interpret, understand, and locate yourself within that. For sure. See, we, when we've passed over that now, now- <clears throat> Yeah, now it's like- that, Now now everyone is like an anti-capitalist yeah. or post-capitalist. Even the billionaires. Think, thinking about the end of capitalism. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really interesting. So Emma, I, you know, we're getting a little deep here. So I just wanna ask you like, to pull it back to the nuclear stuff a little yeah. bit. Um, I just wanted to name, you know, based on your analysis, I wanted to name a few different movements or ideologies. And I wanted, I wanted to get your like reaction to them when I named them all. So <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to go one by one through them, but just like, I'm going to name a bunch of them. So there's degrowth floating around out there. There's the Green New Deal. There's the Bidenism environmental plan. Um, there's a just transition out there. Uh, you know, what's your reaction to all these? Because, I, you know, you said also you're not really into the Green New Deal, which is often positioned as like antithetical to degrowth. Um, so where do you stand on kind of the uh, those names for, for different plans, basically? Like, where do you stand to that? Hmm. And how do you think we can move beyond these different brands that are competing in a marketplace of ideas to, to something that's more materially based? Right. Yeah. I mean, that second one's the hard one because it also means like, yeah. what do we move by materially? Like accurate representation right. of the engineering of the grid or has located the right material political forces that it can use to leverage that change. Probably yeah. we mean both. Uh, I'm going to say, I don't know right off the bat to that part of the question. And then I'm trying to figure that out. Um, I know that my uh, colleague, friend, what have you, Madison Sirwinski, um, is running a thing called uh, Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal, 
and she's got bang on engineering discipline and I think a very good social vision for this stuff. Um, so I'll say that when I look at these other things, like, well, who doesn't want to just transition of anything? Uh, that sounds mm. great. I don't know how I would object to that. I also don't know what, what it means. That's its beauty, yeah. you know? Um, you want an so unjust transition? What, right, yeah. I would, <laughs> you know what? I'd like, I'd, like a, I'd like a cruel transition. Um, I want everyone to be fucked over. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually an Italian futurist. Um, <laughs> hey. Yeah. Hey. I'm transitioning over here. Um, yeah, no, so, okay. So that stuff I'm a little bit more skeptical about um i don't think people have thought that through i think with the green new deal we've heard people say like well no we have to keep nuclear or whatever no like this is not like a, a thing where it's just like we get to have whatever we want and do whatever we want and see how it goes the fleet has to stay alive right now the american nuclear fleet is under assault uh in your state alex yeah. indian point yeah. Um, is about to shut down. That's going to be totally replaced by natural gas, by the way. <laughs> like that's just oh, we know. A, a given, you know, <laughs> like that's, what's going to happen there. Um, uh, yeah, that might be a whole episode on its own. We, we, we might have someone on soon who's going to, who I would love to listen that. to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. I think it's a cause that needs more understanding. Um, you know, when I see green, green new deal, I mean, people mean all sorts of shit by that. Like, but what I do know is that it usually means a huge renewables build out and we're at danger of overbuilding that stuff anyway. So I'm not interested. Basically what you're saying is I want to be deeply reliant on a just in time natural gas economy with an enormous amount of weather dependent electricity like sources on top of that, you know, like that's what that means, like in actual terms. So I'm not interested. Bidenism, I have, it just seems like an incentives package. So I don't really know how that's going to work. What I do know is that Jennifer Granholm has paid lift service to keeping the current fleet alive. Um, I would hope that the Biden administration does some federal action to defend that. Um, what do you think about how, how seriously do you take, uh, you know, they've made a pledge. I know FERC has made a pledge to centering environmental justice and they're going to have like an, an assessment for new plants that are being built um to make sure that like they're centering people or whatever or doing yeah. climate I, reparations or some shit like I, that i don't know what uh, any of that means i'm very skeptical yeah. of it here's what i will say the situation that happened during the cold war with the uranium mining for nuclear weapons in new mexico where i used to live i love new mexico the experience that happened to the Navajo there was a travesty and there should absolutely be material reparations there. Full yeah. stop. That situation needs to be fixed. And it also needs to be fixed for frankly, a more cynical reason is that people love to beat up the civilian nuclear energy industry for that. But here's what I'll tell you. Like if, if you want to say like, you know, climate justice, usually that means like somebody will say the word indigenous a few times and then like bring up all the, you know, different groups that they're going to help. Things aren't so clear. If you go to Ocotillo, California, there are tribes there that have been fighting the renewables build out because it takes up tons of land. The same thing is happening in the Mojave yep. right now. It's going over tribal land. You basically have to scrape that shit clean to put the solar in. If you go north of the border into Saskatchewan, there is a huge trade union that is largely Navajo that are uranium miners that are figuring out how to sue the United States government for shuttering its nuclear plants because it's fucking mm. up their bottom line. Wow. Yeah. Right. So like, what do we mean by reparations, by justice or whatever? These are all terms that obscure more than they clarify. Yeah. And I get it. People want to live in a better 
world. Things seem painful right now. A lot of people suffer and it's unclear how to make it better. I think that's where a lot of stuff is coming from. Yeah. I think a lot of its appeal is there. And I think that yeah. there are actually a lot of true believers attached to this that don't know any better. And then I also think that there are tons of cynical operators as well. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes back to like the authorship of some of this stuff. The, the people, you know, the rep, the climate justice or the climate reparations that, you know, that many people hope exist. You know, I, I don't, I don't blame people for hoping that those things exist, but then the people that are, that are authoring these plans and the money that's behind them. I mean, there's something much more cynical at play and they're, I think they're manipulating a lot of people's good nature um, to come up with these solutions. I mean, for example, really quick about, Indian Point, like Indian Point is shutting down. Um, there is a, uh, a fracked, they say they call it a fracked gas, you know, natural gas uh, plant being built or that's being proposed on the Hudson River, like just north of Indian Point uh, in a town that's very black, you know, very, uh, you know, I think majority people of color town, very poor town. Um, and it's far along. There's a lot of resistance, but it is the proposal is like moving along. Um, and then closer to me in Fox's neck of the woods, um, there's a pump. There was a pump storage uh, proposal uh, being made at the same time. You know, a little bit after the the natural gas plant. And this thing, you know, it's it's on a reservoir. It was proposed to be on a reservoir that's just it's a very affluent area. It's dotted with Airbnbs, second homeowners, Teslas. You know, the demographics are much much whiter and much more affluent than the fracked gas place and of course that plant you know the the pump storage place got shut down immediately all these people like they came together like like a voltron to like block <laughs> this thing from happening yeah you know they were like crying about like oh maybe there's gonna be eminent domain um you know so that thing got shut down instantly but the one that's in like the dirt poor like black and brown town that that one's progressing just fine and that that it that is a you know a natural gas plant, whereas the other solution was an emissionless um, pump storage solution. So yeah, so I, and also it doesn't need to be said, but like this is all like a true blue you know blue wave area where it's yeah. completely democratic controlled. But these people don't give a shit. They'll they'll say environmental justice, but this is what this is what how it actually plays out. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where where is this like? Are you guys in upstate? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived Hudson in Upstate for a little bit. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I lived in White Creek, right near the White. Vermont border. Oh, yeah, that, then way up there, huh? Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, we're I went to Bennington. So I lived in a barn in, uh, in White Creek and drove to... That's the real Upstate. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the, the real, real Upstate. I think it gets a little red up there, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But... yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does, it does here, like you step outside of the cities and it's... I totally. mean, our next door neighbors, you know, there's Trump flags all over, but yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's how it's going to go. I think there is plenty of local stuff happening. If people live in a state where they've got nuclear plants under siege, like I think what people need to understand is that a lot of these unions are really demoralized. A lot of them are hostile to the left because their experience of the left is the environmental movement. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was reading about um, the history of Indian Point and um, it was organized labor was heavily in favor of it being built 
you know, way back when, and mm-hmm. it was the the squishy like left environmental people that were yeah. fighting against it. So yeah, that was Which, that was like the left fractured with with organized labor over that alone. By the way, if, uh, a buddy of mine, um, Fred Stafford, who writes things occasionally for Jacobin, is going to have a piece out about Indian Point and like all of oh, his awesome. writing. Oh, nice. I'm sure it's going to be solid. I mean, that guy's yeah. sharp as jack. So. Yeah, that guy um, puts out bang- bangers all the time. Oh, he's, necessary he's really follow. Necessary follow. Him yep. also, oh, I follow uh, him. Yeah. Mark Mark Nelson, um, buddy of mine, he's got some of the great like um, uh, energy analyst deep dive stuff mm. for anybody that's interested in that. He's sharp as hell. And then my co-author, Adrian, um, I think are all good people to acquaint yourself with to start getting used to this. I mean, like I would say this to like listeners who aren't into this stuff or curious about it or are still aren't convinced like that's okay like decide for yourself obviously you know how i feel and think about these things um but i'll just say this like my dms are open come say what's up happy to try and make time to talk to you about nuclear or whatever you're a cool guy emmett you're cool you're a cool dude (laughs) (laughs) no you know like uh, that level of like sincere sincerity and honesty and like self criticism and humbleness like it's it's refreshing to like talk to somebody like that because i think when you get into like these online personality types and podcasts you know you get like the egos start going a little bit so like that's that's cool like that's really cool and yeah Yeah. i mean anybody who's listening always always like i i feel like we haven't said this in a while but like i always say that too like don't just take my word for it like don't I'm just an idiot too. Who's just trying to figure shit out. Just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like you are, you know, like mm-hmm. I've had my own life experiences that have led me to where I am and I'm trying to share them, but like, don't ever just like let somebody tell you what to think. Always, always take in all the information you can and, and come to your own conclusions on stuff. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I have, I have another question for you actually. So there's this thing about nuclear where the, you know, people want to innovate on nuclear you know, mm-hmm. I heard I heard you say "small is beautiful," like, and on the, the recent podcast, like you were talking about, um, people are talking about like having smaller reactors versus like kind of the big old ones that could be mm-hmm. possibly mass produced and made more efficiently. Um, so, what does innovation with nuclear mean to you? And uh, what do you think about like? Yeah, I know Bill Gates is like researching some nuclear stuff. Does that fall into the "small is beautiful" stuff, or like what what's going on with that? I haven't heard anything good about that reactor design. Um, they were working on it forever. I think it's pretty much fucked. Um, I think he has a vision for what he wants it to be. And I think the engineers who know what they're doing are trying to figure out how to accommodate his vision to reality. And that is the trouble they're running into. I can't think it's some like advanced nuclear design thing. Hey, look, like I'm for R and D, you know, to figure out new shit. Like that's fine. Those are good societal investments. It keeps jobs in the United States. I think that's important, you know? Um, But like, look, man, I'm not going to bet the farm on a thing that doesn't even exist yet. Mm. You know, is how I put that. We want safe bets here when we're dealing with this stuff. We don't want to pray to Silicon Valley for rain. We've got generation three reactors that work well and they work now, Mm. right? That's what we want to do. The reason they're expensive and the reason they take so long to build is because we need greater centralization that can decide on a single single model to just stamp out. We need to accrue experience. Mm. This is a long-term thinking, Mm. right? So 
I don't ever want to turn my back on the future. But what I can say is that I don't want to bet on it either. Mm. Luck isn't a plan. Mm. There's so much that's baked into that idea about we'll just innovate our way out of it. I don't think people yeah. understand it's actually just like almost a little bit of magical thinking going and on there. Could, yeah. could you say like, what do you think is his vision for it? Or what, how does it fall Bill Gates? his world? Yeah, his worldview. I, I'll give him this credit. I think he's, he understands what nuclear is and that it mm-hmm. needs to be part of the solution. In fact, it is like the solution. I think that people like Bill Gates and the people that agree with them, this is true with some of the guys over at Breakthrough Institute as well, some of whom do great technical work, by the way. I would also say that people should follow the Manhattan Institute's conservative climate coverage because those guys are usually all fossil industry shills, but they have (laughs) amazing engineering discipline and you can learn a lot from reading the reports on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So- Let's get back to the topic. What's what's going on with uh, with the Bill Gates and all that? Well, a lot of it is the small is beautiful ideology. Like people are worried about big state enterprises. They have this idea that we can have like this snap together world where you like build each of the parts separately and then you bring them over to the site mm-hmm. and then you snap them together. I mean, look, I don't want, <laughs> just look at how that so, has worked out for Boeing, where they've had like different contracted engineering teams show up with wings that don't fit on the plane oh because they were expecting yeah. it all to snap together at the very end. Like it's, it's not, first of all, we don't have the technology now. Second of all, it's, I think, built on shaky premises from what I can tell as a layman. And three, the solution isn't like a technical problem. We have it. It's the political will institution and infrastructure that we need Mm. to achieve something like a nuclear new deal to decarbonize Mm. and to destabilize the grid to to, uh, defragilize the grid so it sounds like he the 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 approach there is that it's too hard to build an actual nuclear plant and that his he wants to innovate his way out of that problem so that you know obviously like intermittent renewables are not going to cut it for for a long time or possibly forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to find something where it's like, okay, we can quickly deploy nuclear without, without too much resistance. And sometimes kind of unmanned, it's small. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. You know, like, I mean, the whole thing with the advanced renewable stuff, like if I'm going to be like a little bit like pissy for a second, a lot of it is people who are in that sphere pitching to the environmental NGOs to low key let the current fleet die because their whole thing is we're not like other girls. Hmm. We don't have the the problems of Gen 3. We're small, we're out of the way. Oh, you don't like that so many unions are there? We might even be unmanned. In fact, you could just (laughs) bury it in the ground for some fucking reason. Hmm. You know, like that's sort of what's going on there. And that's a game that gets played in that NGO sphere. You know, one thing I was thinking though, when we were talking is like, you know, they're talking all about the climate change, climate change, the weather, uh, the weather's unpredictable. Then why do they want to base our our energy system on the fucking weather? It doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's it's the, look, man, like, we could have a whole nother conversation about yeah. that and the idea of extractivism yeah. and like a really granular conversation about resource acquisition and how that's going to work for stuff like that, because it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the resources, the earth you have to move to get the resources to make the batteries to back up renewables and stuff like that is something sometimes 10 to 100 to 1. 
Yeah. So we're talking <laughs> about like millions of tons of earth moved to get batteries that don't work all the time. <laughs> it makes right? total like, sense. You know, yeah. So like this and is these people are, the, these people are localists too. So like they don't care. They're localists. You know, once the solar panel magically appears in my local utopia, then <laughs> it's all local and it's all about being in right relationship with the earth. <laughs> but you know, if you look at like you said, the supply chain. You know, it's coming from yeah, just, a lithium just, mine. Like, yeah, yeah, see where it comes from, you know. So I'll, I'll sign off with this. I'd, I'd like to uh, promote some other like energy people of different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. So that if people want to like get into this a little bit more, they can. Um, so great podcast run by my friend. I've been there on there a couple of times. Um, Dr. Chris Kiefer in Canada. It's called Decouple. He does great deep dives into some of the material stuff. He interviews a lot of the right people. You can learn a lot about the international scene of all the technology, technology about decoupling human progress from environmental harm. Um, he's a big pro-nuclear guy. The guy has ceaseless work ethic. I really admired him. Um, Robert Bryce is a conservative that lives in Texas. He runs a podcast called Power Hungry. He has great interviews as well. People should check that out. You know, I've, I've learned a ton from that. And um, also like follow these people on Twitter, you know, um, and check out their books. Robert Bryce has a very interesting book called A Question of Power Concerning the Wealth of Nations. Now he's a conservative and he believes in capitalism. He and I have a lot of different ideas, but I can't say that, I, you know, I haven't learned a ton from paying attention to this guy's perspective. You know, like oh, if yeah. you want to get into this, if you're listening to this and you want to get into this more, get ready to get voracious in the perspectives that you consume, right? Like that's what this is all about. So I encourage you to go check that stuff out. And what's your, what's your podcast? How oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess I should do a little self plug. So I run a podcast called exhaust. That's E X dot H A U S T. It is a podcast about why nothing feels possible. Um, I run it with my buddy, John. Um, we try to do a blend of, cultural analysis, historical analysis, and I would say like more like technical, maybe like material engineering supply chain stuff and figure out how to braid these things together to figure out how we got to where we are. So we try to keep it untimely. We try not to chase headlines. And we also, while we definitely have our own perspectives, we try to make sure we're leaving room open for viewers to decide for themselves. One of the ways that we do that is pretty much every single episode has a bibliography of almost all of our references in the episode hyperlinked in the show notes. So that if people want to check it out, they can go look into it for themselves. You know, you can check us out on Spotify or Apple. We also have a Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash exhaust without the period in between the X and the H. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's what we try to do. You know, we try to welcome people into that. We try to provide context and we try to diversify the different types of uh, perspectives, but also lenses through which we approach that problem. Yeah. It's a quality podcast. I, I only listened to one episode, but I'm like, it, it, I was blown away and it's great how you don't, you're not really tying things to like, just, yeah, just topical stuff. You're, you're really, you're creating stuff for people that's, of high value so thank you you yeah, know thank you it, it's much appreciated and people should definitely go check that out
you've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. Um, today we've been talking to Emmett Penny. You can introduce yourself if you want. Yeah, I'm still Emmett. Still here. <laughs> still Emmett. Still here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. was this was great. Uh, yeah.